0: Hello and welcome to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind and we are on our second part episode of our brain cancer extravaganza and Josh brain cancer extravaganza I don't think is a title that anyone has used to describe anything at all but there's there's a first time for everything. You are very very much right about that Michael no one uses extravaganza but it rhymes so I'll give you a pass. That's true I didn't even know it rhymes I'm a poet and I didn't even know I was (laughs) rhyming those words but it happened anyway. Um, There we go. (laughs) So we left uh, you, our lovely listeners, on a bit of a cliffhanger last time. We talked uh, very much around the topic of uh, gliomas, brain cancers, oligodendrogliomas and astrocytomas and all of the permutations and combinations thereof. But there was one major player in this whole very unfortunate picture that we left out by Design, very much by design, because it is the type of brain cancer that we see by far the most commonly, and that is the high grade gliomas, of which a glioblastoma multiform is the most common. And what a
1: dreaded diagnosis that is, Michael. We see it across most ages, but predominantly it is an older Age I guess, diagnosis. Some people are very, very much asymptomatic, whilst others have headaches or seizures or focal neurological symptoms that bring them into hospital. The spectrum is quite diverse.
0: Absolutely. And it is one of those diseases that still to this day carries all of the connotations of the word cancer. When people hear cancer, obviously there are things that that spring to mind, the incurability, the progressiveness the massive effect on mortality and morbidity and we have done oh not Josh and me we haven't done anything but cancer researchers have done <laughs> have done a lot to minimize that for so many other tumor streams or prolong the preservation of quality of life in other tumor streams but glioblastoma remains the tumor with that same unstoppable inexorable growth that is just resistant to pretty much everything we've thrown at it so far
1: that's it michael and tell me this is a bit of a more of a philosophical and research-based question why is this tumor versus any other sort of type we talk about so resistant to treatment There's no targetable mutations that we can use. It's very much resistant to immunotherapy and the extracellular matrix of the GBM make any curative treatment really difficult. On top of that, what I was going to discuss that surgery, which is generally the mainstay of cure for any type of cancer, is very difficult to get complete margins based on the anatomy of the brain and the risks associated with that.
0: You make some very good points there, Josh. So, just before you launch into your spiel about the treatment, or we should probably say the management of these uh, very, very difficult to treat cancers, I'll just mention a bit of the uh, cellular biology and some of the clinical features. So, high grade gliomas are malignant, that sort of goes without saying, but that does make them slightly different to a lot of the things that a lot of the types of cancer that were discussed in our last episode. They are often often rapidly progressive, there's no expected prognoses of ten to fifteen years here. And they are divided into the, the group of cancers that is collectively called high grade gliomas, are uh, divided into anaplastic gliomas, which is anaplastic asterisk oligodendrogliomas. And glioblastoma is based on their histopathologic and molecular features. Josh, you mentioned some of the symptoms that people can present with when it comes to a high grade glioma seizures and focal neurological symptoms. How quickly, we've mentioned they're rapidly progressive, but rapidly progressive is a relative term, especially in our uh, field of study. How um, rapidly progressive would you say that some of these symptoms are in? most cases.
1: When I say rapidly progressive, it's not going to go from day one, you're completely normal. And day day two, you've got left hemiplegia, although that can happen. Like these, That's the thing with these cancers, it can happen. I'd say weeks to short months, you're likely to see some form of change in your neurology, whether it's maybe speech pattern issues, some weakness in the left arm, maybe some nausea, which is just a bit Unexplained, and they might have seen their GP and they have done some blood tests and it's all come back normal. Potentially even some blurred vision could be just the sign of just something as simple as a headache that's progressing over months. And that's kind of the thing. I've had patients in hospital that go from being relatively well to having a dense hemiplegia, so either left or right-sided paralysis, and then you're like, we've done a CT brain, they've got a massive lesion in their brain. And other times, it's just a slow months. And I think probably months is probably
0: the ballpark I've seen mostly. What about yourself, Michael? It is one of those ones that, as you say, um, is very variable. The Frequently, the worst cases I've seen are the ones that are so insidious. If you have something where the cancer is uh, engendering massive change very quickly... Yes, of course, it's awful, but it is also something that is more likely to present to medical attention quicker, if that sort of makes sense. Uh, It is the subtle insidious changes that, in my very limited experience, do tend to present with the most advanced cancers and therefore, uh, by extension, the worst outcomes. But the variability is, uh, I'm right there with you, Josh. The caveat to that as well is, you know, if there's a complication from this
1: tumour that's undiagnosed, I'm talking about intracranial bleed or a seizure. So someone's driving their car, they have a seizure, they're on into a pole, things can be pretty bad from the start. But also, you know, having medical attention early on is by far their best option. But again, this is also... Well, then Michael might talk a little bit about early management and it comes into sort of how you manage these patients as well. Isn't that right, Michael?
0: Absolutely. And I think... Part of the stratagem for early management, uh, much like the presenting symptoms, is dependent on where the tumour is. Anyone who's done an anatomy class or looked at a a diagram of the brain or read about the homunculus, the sensory homunculus, uh, the illustration of the various areas uh, that the brain... uh, the, the various functions that the brain... Uh, serves will know that depending on where the tumor comes from, depending, depending on where in the brain the tumor arises from, the symptoms that you present with will be different. So, if you have a left temporal lesion, you might present with speech or memory issues. If you have a frontal lesion, and I've seen this a number of times, uh, you can present with subacute behavioral changes, the old um, Phineas Gage syndrome. So, that not only affects the presenting symptoms, but also what you do about it. Um, Before I hand over to Josh to talk about the um, management, I will also mention that uh, the other thing that is insidious about gliomas is that, that the majority of patients have no family history or identifiable risk factors. So, you know that if you have a family history of breast cancer, as an example, you might be much more aware of the risks. You might be much more, you might be much more vigilant with your self-examinations, but the majority, for the majority of patients with a high-grade glioma, it comes out of seemingly nowhere. So uh, obviously, if you have a headache, the first thing you think of, unless you're Josh and me, Uh, the first thing you think of is generally not brain cancer because that tends to be very rare, but that is all part of its insidious nature. In terms of the uh, diagnosis so this again as we mentioned last time has been recently updated so the integrated diagnosis from 2021 classifies diffuse gliomas in adults according to as we mentioned before the histopathologic and molecular features they're divided into idh mutant and idh wild type tumors and with each within each category there exist uh, various tumor grades according to the features Um, and this is all included in the flowchart that we uh, added to the description of our last episode. So, for more episode, you can you can uh, look at it there. So, in terms of the uh, non-oncological uh, management, I'll just breeze through this very quickly. Uh, so, the mainstay of treatment is surgical resection. This is not only for relief. Me- This is not only for relief of symptoms and consequences, such as as Josh mentioned, bleeds and sequelae of raised intracranial pressure, but it's also required for a diagnosis. And the uh, separation, the diagnostic criteria are so specific that we definitely do need a histological diagnosis. The the flip side of that is, as we've mentioned several times already, the Resection is not always possible and so frequently all you can manage is a biopsy and this is when the lesion is not amenable to resection, a meaningful amount of tumour can't be removed or the patient has a poor ECOG and unfortunately frequently by the time these people present they are already severely impeded from a functional point of view. Josh, I think I might start with a question for you. The Initial systemic therapy, there is a little bit more nuance than we have one chemotherapy, just give the one chemotherapy, not much. But what factors go into the selection of your initial systemic therapy?
1: I think the first question you have to look at is, and as we mentioned previously, they're molecular markers. IDH mutation, although I think most of these, all these half of these are going to be IDH mutant, the MGM promoter methylation will also influence our choice of treatment, but it also comes down to what's their current functional status. Michael did mention surgery as the mainstay. You need a biopsy as well. But the question is, if you've done the biopsy and the patient still cannot walk and cannot talk and the surgical resection is either too risky or they're not amenable to that, you need to have another conversation because while the, Treatment does work to an extent. It's not going to shrink the cancer enough to make significant changes likely to their overall prognosis. You'll still likely treat them with something like temozolomide, but again, it comes down to a variety of factors and an MDT with neurosurgeons and radiologists to make sure you know the diagnosis. So, I've been in a situation as an anecdote where you know one team's like we want a biopsy, the other team is like, how is that going to change the treatment? And both sides were to an extent right because this gentleman couldn't walk, couldn't talk. You know, no one had actually gone through what the patient wanted, um, either with the family or him slowly with, you know, trying to write out the words. And I think that's really an important kind of component to really ascertain. I
0: I think that's absolutely right. Josh, um, do you want to take us through the uh, mainstay of treatment and if you have one study or if you remember one study to do with glioblastoma, it will be this one. It is the STUP study. It is the EORTC 26981-22981 NCIC CE3 or as it's more commonly known, the STUP study. Mikey, it is the Stupp study. And if you mention it,
1: any oncologist and any, any radiation oncologist will know the Stupp study. It's just very well known. It's probably the one of the biggest changes in the last 20 to 25 years when it comes to glioblastoma multiforme. I'm going to talk about this briefly because I think it is the mainstay of treatment. There is no competitor. There is no novel agent that's thrown this treatment out to date. It is a trial that looked at newly diagnosed, histologically confirmed GBMs, and they were randomly assigned to receive one of two arms. Arm one, radiotherapy alone. Arm two, radiotherapy plus temozolomide concomitantly, meaning at the same time, followed by adjuvant temozolomide. Michael, how long do they continue the adjuvant temozolomide for? I believe it's six months. It is six months. But But that
0: is a point of study that I'm sure Josh will come to later. Yes, I just wanted to bring
1: that up because... Foreshadowing. Uh, and our United States uh, listeners might say like, Josh, that's completely wrong. And, you know, some some people do do 12 months, some people do do 24 months. And in Australia, generally it's six months initially, and then surveillance. In this trial, a total of 573 patients from 85 centers underwent randomization. Median age was 56 of patients had undergone debulking surgery. Median follow-up was 28 months. The median survival, Michael, median overall survival, this is, was 14.6 months with the radiotherapy plus temozolomide versus 12.1 months with radiotherapy alone. The hazard ratio was 0.63. So this
0: is statistically significant. But it's probably one of those (laughs) studies where we say it is statistically significant because of numbers and maths that we don't even pretend to understand. But in terms of the actual benefit that it provides to patients, it's not really much to write home about. It's significant because two months is a lot in the grand scheme of things. But it's not that practice-changing, epoch-defining study that has completely turned turned GBM on its head.
1: Michael, you are right, but this trial actually did turn, I guess, GBM on its head. And I'll talk a little bit in more detail about it because I think whilst the overall survival is only two, two, two and a half months, when you look at the people alive at the 24 month period, and you know, you're right, I guess I'm right and you are right. And you're like, how can you both be right? But I'll explain it. So the 24 month overall survival is 26.5% of the intervention arm and 10% of the control arm. So there's an extra 15% that is alive and the median progression-free survival is 1.9 months more in the intervention arm. Now, but Josh, you're trying to sell this to me. But if if you look at 24 months, the progression-free survival is 10% in the intervention arm, 10.7% and 1.5% in the control arm. And whilst... I do appreciate the fact that they're small numbers. It does mean you can get to a kid's wedding first. you can't. And I think the other caveat to say is that the morbidity of GBM is pretty high. People have debulking surgeries. A lot of the time they don't get back to their prior functional status. They, you know, you see 40 and 50 year olds walking around with walking sticks on high dose of anti-epileptic agents because of seizures. And so whilst we might be maintaining or increasing their overall survival, you have to think long and hard about their quality of life as well. Toxicity wise, which I think is another contentious point about how long do you give temozolomide? Michael, what was the, uh, do you know which cell line was most affected by uh, temozolomide?
0: I believe in the trial it was the neutrophils, Josh.
1: Yeah, that that's that's correct. So it's, it's a bit of an interesting one. So when you look at the concomitant temozolomide therapy, neutropenia affected 4%. And then the adjuvant temozolomide was 4%. So the entire study period, the biggest one was well, neutropenia was 7%, which ties with leukopenia. Then you've got thrombocytopenia, which is 12%. And any was 16%. So realistically, it's myelosuppression. I think we can say that. It's
0: myelosuppression, but it is not in the realm of your carboplatins or your um, AC taxols, where you have a significant, a very high proportion of patients having severe immunosuppression.
1: And where do, where do the recommendations come from this? Substantially, if you've got an MGMT methylated tumor and the patient's under the age of 70, they recommend the use of concurrent temozolomide in combination with radiotherapy followed by adjuvant temozolomide. A dual regimen of temozolomide and lamustine in combination with radiotherapy is an alternative option if people are younger, fitter, and they have MGMT methylated tumors. Although data supporting this is inconclusive and toxicities may be higher. That's the other thing with getting research for these trials because people die so soon, it's hard to actually be able to follow people up and see benefit. And then when you look at the subset of MGMT methylation status, this is retrospective, mind you, so I've got to flag that. MGMT promoter was a major prognostic factor for improved survival with predictive benefit of chemotherapy. MGMT doubled the two-year overall survival compared to radiotherapy alone. So this is retrospective, but it shows the previous trial, I don't think they looked for MGMT methylation. MGMT methylation overall survival was 21.7 months versus 15.3 months for radiotherapy with a hazard ratio of 0.45. So you can kind of see how with this information, you can help prognosticate a little bit better and say, look, these are the benefits of what we found. Obviously, it's still not great, but it's something there another quick trial i'll talk about is the ncice 6 i think it's actually the nice 6 but it's the eor tc 26062 i'll link that in the description below uh, it's a phase 3 trial looking at adjuvant temozolomide in the elderly population which isn't generally done and now it was radiotherapy in newly diagnosed gbms Um, We knew that increased overall survival. But the question they were asking is, does the addition of TMZ to RT improve survival in the elderly patients? And so you had to be over the age of 65, a good ECOG performance status, and it was stratified according to age. The results showed that overall survival, radiotherapy plus temozolamide, significantly improved overall survival over radiotherapy alone, with a median being 9.3 versus 7.6 months, with a hazard ratio of 067 And this was statistically significant. PFS was also significantly improved and that was 5.3 versus 3.9 with a hazard ratio of 0.5, also statistically significant. And then if you look at the MGMT methylation status, those that were MGMT methylated, uh, the intervention arm, 13.5 months versus 7.7 months, that was for overall survival and that was a hazard ratio of 0.53, also statistically significant when you compare to mgmt unmethylated the intervention arm was 10 months and the control arm was 7.9 months so a hazard ratio 0.75 so the summary of these is that even if someone's old you should definitely have a look and treat them as they would if they were 40 or 50. we've already spoken about mgmt methylation but they then ended up doing a study looking at this in a prospective trial uh, and that's called the NOAA-9, 9 N-O-A-09. I'm going to quickly talk about the results, but the median overall survival in the modified in intention to treat analysis uh, because they were comparing patients with lamustine plus temozolomide or standard of care, which is daily temozolomide and radiotherapy. So two chemotherapies versus a single chemotherapy with radiotherapy. And this was similar for the lamustine and temozolomide versus the standard temozolomide. So 37.9 versus 31.4 months with a hazard ratio of 0.9, although not statistically significant. But there was, of course, a trend towards improved survival with the lamustine and the temozolomide arm. Um, And just a caveat that both arms got radiotherapy, but one had the extra chemotherapy. So potentially you could give this in an early chemotherapy in an early GBM but again the question with this is okay what's the toxicities for this as well so the conclusion of it is that temozolomide and lamustine might improve survival compared to standard temozolomide in a select fitter patients with MGMT methylation there were limitations to this study including that of the small trial size um, and there was also higher risks of nausea, haematological toxicities. Um, and so that's why maybe the standard of care would have been the better option. One other question you might be asking yourself, and Michael, I don't know if you want to ask me about bevacizumab. Is there
0: a role? Is there a role for bevacizumab in early uh, GBM or high grade glioma, Josh? Thanks for asking, Mikey. I
1: I don't think it is. And I've gone, bevacizumab is a drug that's been around for donkey's years. It's not recommended for routine use for newly diagnosed GBM, but I think you're going to talk about recurrence. Um, You can consider in bulky, non-resectable tumors in in an attempt to control refractory edema and mass effect. There are two trials I'll briefly mention. So one is a a VAGLIO study, A-V-A-G-L-I-O study, where 921 patients were given BEV or placebo in conjunction with standard of care, which is temozolomide and radiotherapy. As you can see, it's all the same combination, just lots of different trials to do with it. After treatment, the results show the median progression free survival was improved in patients with BEV versus placebo, so 10.6 versus 6.2 months, with a hazard ratio of 0.64. But median overall survival was not changed and was not statistically significant. The other thing is there was increased toxicities as well to do this. There was a second trial, which was the RTOG-0825, which again looked at something somewhat similar using bevacizumab or placebo with termizolamide. Um, for 6 to 12 months of maintenance therapy. And in this particular case, P- uh, progression-free survival did not reach the predefined significant threshold and the median overall survival did not differ. There was a difference between MGMT, which saw was 14 versus 8 months, and overall survival regardless of the study treatment. So they both saw benefit in regards to that. So I think what's important to note is that there isn't really a huge amount of benefit for bevacizumab, and you've got to compare that to the toxicity. Now, Mikey, I know you're you're chafing at the bit to kind of talk about recurrence, but can I talk about one more thing?
0: Is it the evidence between 6 and 12 months?
1: It is. It's like you read my mind. I love it.
0: Yes. So, Josh, you mentioned this just a little bit before, and you mentioned that it was controversial. But is there... Any documented evidence of a benefit of six months of adjuvant temozolomide, which is the standard, as we mentioned, over the 12 months?
1: Well, there is actually a phase two trial I would love to talk to you about, Michael. Um, it was a randomized trial that included 159 patients with GBM who had not progressed after six cycles of adjuvant TMZ. And they were randomized to either stop TMZ, temozolomide, or continue for up to a total total of 12 cycles. So the median follow-up was 33 months. Progression-free survival was similar between the groups. And overall survival was not statistically worse in the extended group. So but the incidence of lymphopenia, as you mentioned, thrombocytopenia and nausea were high in the extended group. In a secondary analysis, neither MGMT methylation status nor measurable disease were predictive of benefit of additional temazolamide so this phase two study does somewhat say potentially more than six months at that time isn't beneficial but i also appreciate when you're like we just need to watch and wait until such time as you most likely progress is pretty daunting and psychologically
0: uh, harrowing for a lot of our patients i think that's a very good summary josh um, Josh, with your permission, I guess we have to turn our attention to what happens when the adjuvant temozolomide, when the surgery, when the radiotherapy, uh, when it doesn't work. And unfortunately, this is the case for a significant proportion of our patients, even though the standard procedure is that we follow them up with uh, serial MRIs, uh Obviously, MRIs where they're available, but um, the idea is that we would follow up MRIs about every couple of months uh, for up to three years and then three to six months indefinitely. So even if you're one of the, at least in my experience, the small proportion of patients who does really well and has a long uh, survival with high-grade glioma, you're still going to get a MRI every three to six months after the completion of your treatment. So we have to talk about what happens when, they, when there is a recurrence, or there is an incomplete uh, surgery, an incomplete resection with residual disease. The obvious answer to what do we do when there is local recurrence is, can we cut it out? That stands to reason, especially if we cut it out the first time, can we cut it out a second time? Well, unfortunately, that is only an option for about 20 to 30% of patients. Um, And the timing is critical here because, ideally, a repeat surgical resection should be done more than six months after the initial surgery. As earlier, earlier surgeries, surgeries closer to the initial surgery, raise the risk of unnecessary intervention on the basis of pseudoprogression, which is something that we should also mention, uh, but are also unlikely to provide durable benefit if the initial surgery followed by radiotherapy did not provide tumour control. That sort of makes perfectly logical sense. It is similar to retreating an ovarian cancer patient with carboplatin and paclitaxel only a handful of months after they last had it, uh, what our previous episode would call carb- um, carboplatin Resistant or carboplatin refractory. If patients can't even get to six months, they can be considered refractory to surgery. So it is a very uh, small proportion of patients that can have uh, repeat surgeries. I will make a quick note about the idea of pseudo progression because this is uh, something that will uh, be thrown around at any center that does a significant proportion of uh, gbm treatment so josh what what is what is pseudo progression to your understanding i think
1: if i was a radiologist or a neuroradiologist it is generally when post-surgical changes and other potentially conflicting image results someone goes oh it's definitely progression where in fact it's Edema or healing of the scar tissue, or there's been some blood, or there's something that might look like progression, but in fact, it's not. And I think this highlights the complexity and the difficulty of neuro oncology, or sorry, neuroradiology, even on top of neuro oncology, is that you need someone trained in really neuroradiology to sort of look at these can kind of go through it all because it's difficult to say. And so I think pseudoprogression is when you're like, are you progressing? But it's so soon, we don't think it is. And realistically, there's a number of potential other factors that could be causing the images that you are seeing.
0: You're exactly right, Josh. It is very, very similar to uh, the progression that we see with immunotherapy, where at the first. restaging scan after your therapy in this case surgery and radiation with or without temozolomide scans may appear worse and the key differentiating factor if you're wondering whether a patient has pseudoprogression or not is that pseudoprogression is asymptomatic so if the cancer is not growing even though it looks worse on the scan and as Josh said the the differences are frequently subtle um, the patient should not have symptoms if it is a fake or pseudo progression. With that sort of clarification out of the out of the way, coming back to patients with true progression or true recurrence, um, we can't do surgery in the vast majority of patients, but what about more radiation? Well again, there is a time factor to this. If a patient has had radiotherapy in the last few months, again, largely because it is likely to impose toxicity on the patient without significant benefit, uh, re-irradiation is generally not advised. However, selected patients with small recurrent tumours and good performance status, so we're already narrowing the population down quite significantly, may benefit from repeat treatment to deliver total doses of thirty to thirty-five grays on average, um, and but this is only with the most modern, highest-tech forms of radiotherapy, the highest precision techniques. Standard radiotherapy tends not to work. So, Josh, you've got a patient who has recurred. Let's say, for the ease of uh, ease of discussion, uh, a. 12 months after their initial treatment, after they've completed their initial um, adjuvant temozolomide, what options should you have on the table, do you think? The hint is that there aren't too many, unfortunately. Thanks. That, I, always, I always did a good
1: hint, Mikey. But your options are, one, debulking. Uh, are they a candidate for further debulking? I'm not a neurosurgeon. So what I would actually do with my patient when they are progressing is have another discussion at the MDT so we can all look at the images, figure out the best path forward. So your options are debulking, potentially some further radiotherapy, but like all tissue in our body, you can only have so much radiotherapy and then it stops working. Plus the tox from that, especially if they've had whole brain radiotherapy before. The third option would be some further temazolamide, potentially temazolamide, lamustine, and maybe bevacizumab in the metastatic setting. Um, Sorry, when I say
0: metastatic, I mean recurrence. And lastly, you might be looking at a trial. That was exactly the answer that I was hoping for, Josh. Thank you. Um, Because of the dearth of... Options. I mean, Josh was basically able to list all of them there in about 10 seconds. Uh, it is particularly important that you fish around for clinical trials. There are a number of clinical trials around uh, that will cater specifically to GBM. The drug company or the um, uh, scientific group that cracks GBM and uh, gives it that uh, melanoma-esque push is going to be incredibly, incredibly um, successful um, in terms of marketing their drug or promoting their drug because it really is going up against a very, very small field indeed. So clinical trials are very important, especially if your uh, patient needs to go further afield, if your hospital is not a a hospital that has a large trial uh, department because with these patients... By this stage, they're frequently quite debilitated, they're quite morbid in terms of their function. So a bit of extra logistical planning is also required. But in terms of the more conventional things, because what trials are available changes frequently by the day or by the hour. Josh, you are exactly right. So a temozolomide rechallenge can be considered in patients who have relapsed several months or longer after completing their adjuvant temozolomide. And as we've mentioned, pretty much ad nauseum this program... It is better in the MGMT methylated group. If your patient is MGMT unmethylated, some in some cases you very well may want to just move on to the next best thing. And that next best thing tends to be lamustine, usually in combination with bevacizumab, and we'll get to bevacizumab in a minute, but lamustine is frequently used in the second line. Sometimes it's pushed back to the third line after bevacizumab alone, but I guess the running theme with this section, Josh had plenty of studies in the adjuvant setting, but there's really not a good amount of evidence for treatment of GBM recurrence. So single-agent lamustine has been associated with a response rate of 9-14%, to with a PFS of 1.5-2.7 to months, which is make no mistake about it, abysmal. Uh, And if you have progression uh, in a month and a half or two months or three months, you are really starting to scrape the bottom of the barrel after lamustine. It's never been shown to have superiority over another agent in an actual randomized control trial, but it is considered a standard of care Strangely, because it has activity in the control arm of several randomized control trials. So, as a comparator, things that were compared with Lamustine did not beat it, and clearly the uh, scientific community has pointed to Lamustine and said, well, this is clearly as good as whatever we're throwing at it. So, if if that's not damning with faith praise, I don't know what is.
1: Hey, Mikey, what about procarbazine, lamustine, and vincristine versus temozolomide.
0: Now, that is a very interesting question, Josh, because while it is one of the few regimens that has some phase three data, which I'll mention in a second, it's not something that I've ever seen used. Have you seen it used at your center?
1: I, I think I've seen it once. Potentially, or maybe that was just in the notes of the patient, but once.
0: And I do wonder if it is a toxicity thing, if it is a case of this is a, um, it's a combination uh, chemotherapy regimen that has, that has some potentially significant toxicities and you're dealing with patients who are frequently, as we've mentioned, not in the best shape functionally. And so you're potentially putting these people at risk of significant side effects.
1: I think that's exactly it, Michael. When, when you have a recurrence and let's say you've had two resections, it's going to be difficult. It doesn't matter who you are or how old you are.
0: You're absolutely right. So there was, however, the, what, one thing that P, uh, PCV chemotherapy has going for it is that there was a phase three trial where PCV was compared with temozolamide in 447 patients with a high-grade glioma at first recurrence, following the initial treatment with radiation alone. Now, that is a fairly big flag because it is not comparing it with the current standard of care which Josh has gone through in great detail, which is radiotherapy plus temozolomide. It is very unusual, at least in my experience, Josh, I don't know if you have a different uh, experience, but it is very unusual for someone to get radiotherapy alone in the gbm setting
1: in the in the recurrent phase i have never seen radiotherapy given alone in GBM. but even
0: in the adjuvant or post-surgical or post-biopsy i feel like if one thing is dropped it tends to be the radiotherapy as opposed to the temozolomide.
1: yeah that's 100% right um I think you know. There's no point. The evidence does not support giving just radiotherapy in the adjuvant setting. And these people, you want to give absolutely everything you can early on.
0: Absolutely. So in this study, um, there was no statistically significance in PFS or in overall survival when patients treated. With PCV were compared to those treated with temozolomide. So it was in the PFS, it was three point six versus four point seven months, and six point seven versus seven point two months. So you know how I said that um, that PCV has some phase three data. Turns out it wasn't great phase three data. The main toxicities, as we mentioned, were uh, usually hematological. But other toxicities, including nausea, including nausea, vomiting, um, uh, asthenia, and vincristine-induced peripheral neuropathy, while they were mild to moderate, they were much more significant or much more common in the PCV arm um, compared to the temozolomide arm. So increased toxicity with very little benefit. So that's probably another reason why PCV has really tended to go the way of the dodo. Finally, Josh, I think the last thing we'll talk about is Bevacizumab, because Bevacizumab is a mainstay in GBM in a way that it's not really a mainstay in any other treatment. We've talked about it as sort of a adjunct, a sprinkling on top of systemic therapy for uh, colorectal cancer and upper GI cancers, but it is seldom, if ever, the backbone. It's always... Always the bridegroom, and never the bride, as it were. So, even though bevacizumab is the thing that most people will reach towards after temozolomide in GBM, it has never demonstrated an improvement in survival in the recurrent setting. The FDA approval, and I guess it's off patent now, but by extension the previous PBS approval, um, is based is based on an improvement in progression free survival, and this may be due to bevacizumab's ability to decrease the permeability of the of the blood brain barrier, which results in reduced vasogenic edema rather than a true anti tumor effect, and this is something that I'm seeing quite a lot in. Uh, not just GBMs, but in other tumour streams with very difficult-to-treat brain metastases, where you have patients on dexamethasone, or insert steroid of choice here, and you try to wean them down, but at a certain level, they just start having recurrences of uh, vasogenic edema. And so now that we have uh, much less restricted access to Bevacizumab, uh, people are tending to use it as a um, steroid sparing agent for uh, brain swelling. Josh, is that something that you've seen?
1: I actually personally have never seen bevacizumab used for brain swelling. I know that it potentially can be used. I've seen dex. I think if you have significant brain swelling, there's dex and mannitol. And I've also seen mannitol used in the acute setting, especially in our intensive cares here in Australia. But bevacizumab, I've never seen used. I think if there's that significant brain swelling and it's refractory, maybe they use it. But most of the time, with our current regimens, we can adequately manage brain edema. Yeah,
0: yeah, I, I definitely have seen it at my centre in the uh, refractory setting where steroids are either not cutting it or you can't wean them off the steroids completely because obviously we don't like having people on steroids long term. Um, In brief though, before we wrap it up, um, the evidence for Bevacizumab comes from two studies uh, from TAL in 2014 and uh, WIC- that's not John, Um, and Wick and Associates in uh, 2017, where they compared, and this is some evidence for lamustine as well, where they compared lamustine by itself, bevacizumab by itself, or the two agents in combination. In Tal's study in 2014, lamustine, the median PFS was one month, the median overall survival was eight months, Uh, with Bev alone, PFS is 3 months, and the overall survival is 8 months. Combined, the PFS is 4 months, and the overall survival is 12 months. And this pattern was mirrored in the uh, Wick et al. study from 2017. Now, obviously, with Bevacizumab, you've got to always be worried about the sequelae of hypertension, particularly if you have people who have had previous neurosurgery. Um, You have to uh, consider wound healing, you have to consider renal impairment, and uh, obviously there's always the risk of bowel obstructions, though, without something like a dirty grey tumour partially blocking the alimentary tract, I think that's less likely in the GBM space. So, um, the main toxicity with lamustine that I've seen, and Josh, please uh, chime in if you have a different experience. Uh, so the main, so cytopenias are obviously a consideration, but because it's an oral agent that's given once every few weeks, uh, every, uh, every six weeks in combination with bevacizumab, it tends to not be something that we see. The one thing I have seen a couple of times is LFT derangement. Josh is nodding. So, um, <laughs> Always good to not on a. Podcast always, always it, good yeah. to not on a podcast. I think that gets our point across. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I've been the same. So, yeah. so to summarize, I guess to to bring this all together, glioblastomas and high grade gliomas are terrible. Let's start with that. They are aggressive. They are progressive, and they have very, very few treatment options in the early stage. Treatment with surgery and radiotherapy, with usually or unless they have a very good reason not to be, we in combination with temozolomide, followed by adjuvant temozolomide, as per the STUP or STUP protocol, uh, is the standard of care. And that is the best shot that most of these patients have for a durable response. If they have a recurrence, if they have an early recurrence, in summary, they are in big, big trouble as going back to the well of surgery, radiotherapy, therapy, and ter- yeah. Surgery, radiotherapy and temozolomide Tends to not be feasible And so then you start reaching for agents with not, not as high grade evidence as we would like Such as lamustine, bevacizumab And I mean if you're really desperate You can uh, go for PCV as well But if you have a patient in front of you In that situation Always ask your local, local tertiary or Quaternary Centre to see if they have any clinical trials, particularly before the patient's ECOG starts trending downward.
1: That's a really good summary, Michael. Thank you for that. I think next week we have a somewhat brighter episode for you, ladies and gentlemen,
0: where we have... It'd be hard to be darker than uh, <laughs> uh, the last two episodes. They've been, They've been very grim, Josh. I know, but we're going to be talking about the ASCO
1: GU update for 2023, which happened in the last couple of weeks. So we will be talking about all of the interesting and pioneering research coming from prostate and genitourinary cancers.
0: That sounds very exciting. It's always fun to talk about the various uh, updates and cutting-edge, I almost said cutting-edge technology, cutting-edge research (sighs) coming out of these coming out of these local meetings, so we look forward to seeing you then.